You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, Pastor Josh Brady preaches from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, as we continue in our series through Philippians. In this passage, the Apostle Paul talks about righteousness through faith in Christ. As always, we pray that God would strengthen and challenge us through his word today. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you open to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, 1 through 11 is our text for today. Uh, But before we get started, I I know that we we made mention of it at the beginning of our service today. Uh, But this weekend is Veterans Day weekend. Yesterday was Veterans Day. Friday is Veterans Day observed. We're going to celebrate veterans today. Uh, And and with that, tonight, we have a big celebration for all the veterans in our church. Uh, And so we are excited about that. But I don't want to miss an opportunity this morning. Uh, And because you are a part of us and we are a part of you, we want to celebrate all veterans who are here. So if you are a veteran and you have served our country through military service, would you stand this morning? Be proud. Yes. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are so thankful for you and your service. We would love to ask the Lord's blessing on this day uh, and and honestly on on your, your lives as you continue to serve the kingdom faithfully. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning with joyful and glad hearts. We thank you for... Um, the veterans that we just watched stand before us, maybe some who did not, maybe some who wished they could be here today but weren't able to. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, an opportunity to, to be a part of a faith family that everybody walks into this room that you have uniquely designed and gifted in many different ways for your glory and the good of this world. And I thank you for that of veterans and how we celebrate that this weekend. Uh, So Jesus, I pray for this day and I pray for tonight as we celebrate together uh, over a meal. Lord Jesus, would you be glorified there as well. Lord, we love you and it's in your name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Well, friends, as we get ready today, uh, I have been waiting, honestly, since we've started this sermon series to get to this text. Uh, This is 11 verses, but there are a lot of truths in this text. Again, much like always, we're going to spend roughly 32 minutes and 38 more seconds. Uh, At least that's what they want me to spend. I'm going to spend a good 45 just because that's what we always do. But in that, we are going to, to share in this word together But know that we could spend weeks just in these 11 verses and continue to ring out truths of God's word, truths of God's character. And with that, I want to to establish a few things. Number one, as we have journeyed through Philippians so far, we're at the midway point. There's four chapters total, and and we are beginning chapter three, all right? So so in this, we've covered a lot of ground. And more than likely, you have probably read Philippians. It's one of those books that, that we read often and early and and many times. But it's also one of those books that seem, when you read it, to be incredibly elementary. And what I mean by that is there, there's, there's really no groundbreaking stuff as we, we journey through, through this letter. Just at first glance, just at first glance, you read it and you say, well, of course that's right. Of course we should have joy. Of course we should be united in, in heart and mind. Of course we should we could consider others as more important than ourselves. Yes, that's right. Amen. 
But then maybe you have left the sermon or maybe left life group when you went to further discussion and you begin to become overwhelmed by the implications of such elementary teaching. I know that's how I continue to be with this text. Today is going to be that times 10. That what you are going to hear, what you have heard read, what you're going to hear preached is going to be nothing groundbreaking to you, but when we try to understand and apply it to our life, more than likely it is going to leave us with a sense of what do we do with what we've just heard? And I pray what we would do, is, as we always would, is we would surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, not again as if it ran out or it's not good the last time, but again as if it is just a new day with new opportunities and we lay that day down at the Lord Jesus' feet, okay? So, so with that, I want us to look at Philippians chapter 3, and I want us to look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Now, this, this verse gives the answer to one of our life's biggest problems. And you say, Josh, there, there's not much in verse 1. No, there's a lot in verse 1, and it's going to give an answer to one of our life's biggest problems. Here, here's one of our biggest problems. How do we let go and trust God with our whole life? Now, again, without going into to too much detail and, and working through it again, I know that we have a tendency, and it's easier, when we come into this room to say to the Lord Jesus, Lord, here I am, use me. Lord, here I am, send me. Lord, here is my life. I give it all to you. But I don't know if you are like me. I would assume that you are. I assume we're similar in this, that the moment that this service ends, the moment that life group's over, the moment you get into your car and you get back to your house, or maybe you're okay for the rest of the day. Maybe it's going to be when you get to work or school tomorrow. You're going to have a tendency to not pray that same way. Or at least not to remember it the, the same exact way that you prayed it before. So the, the question that we wrestle with this morning, how do we let go and trust God with our whole life, not just on Sunday morning, but with every moment we have left? Paul says, rejoice in him. Now, I know, I know that sounds elementary. I know that sounds simple. But listen to me, church. When we rejoice in him, when we rejoice in Jesus, seemingly everything else, all of our problems, all of our struggles seem to fade away in comparison to his nearness to us. And so as we look to this today, I don't want us just to gloss over words because we've read them a hundred times. I want us to see them and allow them to change us from the inside out. If you are not, here, here's the, the inverse of that, right? If, if you are not rejoicing in Jesus, you can't trust Jesus. If, if, you're not, if you're not rejoicing in him, you can't trust him. You won't, no, no, you can say, I trust him. But if your heart is not glad in him, then your heart is not going to rest in him. And so for us today, this is the core of what we're going to work with. I told you it is going to be elementary and it's going to be overwhelming. Because I know in this room, if, if just a random sample, yet all 2,000 of us who are here today, we have a lot going on. We have a lot that we are wading through. And to add insult to injury sometimes, we are heading into the most wonderful time of the year. That's usually filled with the deepest depression of the year. 
And that, that's a myriad of reasons we're not going to get into today, but it's a very real thing. And so my encouragement to you is from God's word today is that we would rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be able to trust him and to rest in him. What does it mean to rejoice in Christ? Well, it means to know him. Not, not just to know about him, not to know facts about him, where he was born, how he lived his life, the ministry that he had, the place that he died, the place that he was resurrected, not, not a geographical knowledge, but an intimate knowledge, who he is, what he loves, what he desires. Rejoicing in Christ means loving him. It means to be glad to be with him. It means to be glad to be with the people who are associated with him. It means to be glad to be a part of the work that he has called us to. Rejoicing in him is gladly being obedient to his commands in our life. To rejoice in Christ is simply to sit with him and to talk with him and to allow him to talk back to us. Don't don't overcomplicate it. To rejoice in something is to be happy in something. If we are not happy in Christ, we will not trust Christ. And and here, I think, is is potentially some dangers of, of, of rejoicing in the wrong things because truthfully, we are going to rejoice in something. We, we are going to, to be happy in something. That we, we are created to do so. So here's the question that we need to address right now. What are we most rejoicing in today? And when I say we, I mean you. I want this to be as individualized as possible as we work through this text because it's going to bring us, hopefully, to a place where we can rest in Jesus today, okay? So what are we rejoicing in right now, today? In this moment, practically speaking, when, when you think about it, what brings you the most joy? What do you think about the most? What drives your day-to-day? What informs your habits? These are just questions that I write for my own life to consider where I am and what I love the most, okay? So I don't want you to be mistaken. You may hear me asking these questions and begin to feel badly about your current situation. You say, oh man, I know it should be Jesus, but it's not Jesus, it's other things. All right, so I get that, but I want to give you some sense of relief if misery loves company. We all are there. None of us are perfect in our pursuit of Christ, but I'm thankful he is perfect in his pursuit of us. Like I'm thankful for that part of the gospel. But in his pursuit of us, in in his holding us forever, sovereignly holding us, nothing can shake us. Romans 8 tells us that. It doesn't negate the fact that we are called to at least question our affections, to consider where they are, and in that, to make course correction as needed. So so with that, okay, so so just some things that we, we look at. When you think about Jesus... What is it that you love the most? Right? So, so just, just with, without trying to be too Sunday school answer with it, when you close your eyes and you take a deep breath and you think about Jesus, what is it that floods your mind and fills your heart with joy? Some, some characteristics that I, I wrote down that are potential for us. Is it his glory? 
Is it, is it the Isaiah 6 moment when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up? Is it, is it that moment, that, that understanding, when, when Isaiah realized that God wasn't against him but for him, that his heart was welled up with joy, and that caused him to say, Lord, here I am, send me. And if you go and continue to read Isaiah, he gets sent out into an impossible mission. Essentially, the Lord says to him, okay, I'm going to send you, but you're going to preach and they're not going to listen. You're going to tell them to repent and they're going to hate you for it. And he said, I don't care because you're the one sending me. Is it his glory that we find joy in? What, what, about, what about his nearness? When you think about Jesus, what is it, causing, what, what is it that causes you to rejoice the most? Is it, is it his nearness? Maybe it's his forgiveness. Maybe it's the fact that he is all-knowing. And he knows, there, he knows everything there is to know about you and your life. What you've done where you did it, and who you did it with. And he sees that, and in his grace, he says, I love you. That forgiveness, is that something that causes your heart to rejoice? Maybe, maybe it's the call to a mission. Maybe it is much like Isaiah and what we just talked about, and there is a call to understand that there is nothing in us that God needs, but there is everything in us that God created to do a task. And so there's a a call to a mission. Maybe that is where you find joy. Another one is the restoration of purpose in your life. Maybe you have done things or been a part of things, or maybe things have been done to you that you think have rendered you useless for anything, much less kingdom work, and God comes and breathes life into you, and now you are more beautiful than anything else in all of creation. Maybe it's the restoration of purpose. Maybe, and I think this is true on most Sundays, I would pray for you. Maybe you rejoice in the Lord because you get to be near his people. Because we do, we live in a place that's fast and filled with people and there's always something to do. But in those moments, we can feel incredibly lonely, can't we? And our hope would be that when we come into this place on this campus, or at least gathered with God's people, no matter where we are, it should be enough margin built all the way around it. We talked about that last week, where we can just stop and we can be with each other. When somebody asks us how we are, we don't have to give just the perfunctory, I'm okay, and then move on. And instead, we can be honest, and they can be honest with us, and we can know that we are in a safe place. Is that, is that when you think about Jesus, is that what causes your, your heart to rejoice? So when Paul tells the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord, this is what he is calling them to. This verse 1 has two parts to it, really. Number one is an encouragement to rejoice in Christ. But the second part, and I'll read that part in just a moment again. But it's a setup for something that they need and we need to hear again and again. I'll read it for you. This is the second part of verse 1. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. That is a warning that is about to, to happen. Paul is writing and it's, it's not a problem for him. He, he can write it 100 times and we need to hear it 101 times. What is that warning? Look at verse 2. We're going to pick up from here going pretty quickly. Number 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Wait, wait, Paul is calling someone a dog? Remember that, that, that wording was reserved for Gentiles, particularly when Paul was not walking with the Lord Jesus. But this letter, the Philippian letter, is written primarily to Gentiles. So he's not, he's not writing to them, the people that he loves, the people that has been a part of his, his ministry for 10 years. He's not writing to them, calling them dogs. 
But he's calling a group of people. And without going into too much detail, I want you to remember this name and you can go back and do some study on it. The name is Judaizers. Judaizers. It is a group of people. Judaizers were a group of Jews that decided that they could follow the teachings of Jesus. But if anybody truly wanted to be in the family of God, they still needed to be adherent to the Jewish culture and the customs, particularly to the custom of circumcision. Now, uh, we're going to move into a section of the scripture that I'm going to try to speak in code. I know we have some younger ears in the room, and this should be fun to see if I can actually do it or not. And if not, then your lunch just got a lot more interesting. Let's go. Circumcision is, is a, a cutting of the flesh. And for the Jewish people, for the Hebrew people, they would believe that this was the sign, the physical sign of the covenant of God. Like, like how, so, so you would walk up to somebody and they would say, hey, how, how do you know that you belong to God? And they would say, well, I bear a scar on my body that proves that I belong to God. And that would be essentially kind of like the, the, the past to say, hey, look, here, here is my, my card. My, my, I'm a card-carrying member of the family of God. And this is, this is what proves it, right? But to be fair, that was true. That is how people would know that they were a part of God's family all the way up until the day of Pentecost. But something happened on that day that shifted everything. And the Apostle Paul is going to make an argument that, that the believers here in Philippi and the believers here today and everywhere in between those two places and on into eternity need to consider about their own life. So when he moves here, he would say, watch out for those dogs. There's a new sign, essentially what Paul says, a new sign, a new proof of the covenant. And it is much more meaningful than just marking the flesh of cutting the flesh. Paul says that, that if, if you were to consider going back and, and going back to the old way, the way the Judaizers, Judaizers would want them to, that that is nothing more than evil, nothing more than mutilating the flesh. And, and it's, it's deeper, like, like the meaning is deeper than cutting. Mutilating, the word Paul uses here, is more in line with what pagan religions would do as they would cut themselves to try to please their gods. Essentially, Paul is saying about the Judaizers, that's what you're doing. That, that's what you're telling people to do, to do something in hopes that you're doing it would cause God to, to love you. Now, you hear us say all the time, it's not try harder to be better, praise God. But Paul is, is contending for that even in the most religious of activities for the Jewish people, or at least these Judaizers, right? So Paul says that there's a different way. And to help us better understand the difference, look at verse 3. Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, we are, are the sign. We are the sign of the covenant relationship with God. If you want to know if I belong to God, look at my life. If I want to know that you belong to God, I'm going to look at your life. When the Holy Spirit came and breathed life into those brothers and sisters on that day of Pentecost, everything was changed from then on out. Church family, that's not just a story from 2,000 years ago. That's still true today. Maybe we don't follow the custom of circumcision as being the card-carrying member into the family of God. But can I encourage you 
that we do an awful lot of religious activity in our lives today in hopes of proving we belong to God, in hopes of proving that God would see us, notice us, and love us. And Paul would say to that today, I am sure, if you believe that you are working harder to be more in hopes that God would love you, that is no more than pagan worship. Oh, he goes into it a little bit more, more strongly. And again, we're going to get more into the code in just a minute. Here's the true covenant proof. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and there's no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in our own abilities. So the Judaizers want to say, well, will you want to love God? You want to be loved by God? Then you got to be like us because we're God's chosen people. Like, I want you to know that, that we have the best pedigree. Paul says, not a chance. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for a lot that Paul writes. I'm very thankful for what he writes right here. Because Paul essentially says, do you want to see a pedigree that's worth following if that were a thing? You want to hear about somebody's life who actually did everything to the nth degree the right way? He says, then look at my life. Look at verse 4 and following. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, he was a Pharisee. So, so essentially, just in, in that passage, verse 5, essentially what he's saying is there's nobody more religious than Paul. And if you were to follow not just him and what he did, if you followed his lineage all the way back to his inception, he is from the tribe of Benjamin, which if, if you go back to the Old Testament, that's the only tribe of Israel that actually stayed faithful. And so what he says here, look, if you want to look at pedigree, if you want to look at religiosity, you can look at my life. As to zeal, verse 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul was meticulous in what he lived for and what he stood for. Paul said that he was absolutely the best at being religious. And he also said it got him nowhere. Verse 7, look what he says. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Not only was his religious actions not gains, or when you think of gains and loss, think of it this way, because this is, this is what the text would lend to. A gain would be something that would lend itself to bring you closer to God, and a loss would be something that would, would tend to draw you away from God. Okay, so, so think of it that way. So, so a gain is something that brings us close to God. A loss is something that takes us further away from God. Here's what he says. Not only was his religious actions not gains, they were losses. This is, this is heavy, heavy stuff. All right, let's pay, pay close attention here, okay? Because this is the trap we get stuck in every day. I desire to be closer to God. I know I should be closer to God than I am. So therefore, let me do more and try harder to be closer to God. I'm going to wake up and resolve to be a better person. I'm going to wake up and I am going to resolve to help more people than I hurt. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to, to decide to stop doing things that I know are bad as much as I can. You ever get caught in this trap? And the reason I call it a trap, how often can you fulfill that? How, how often do you get to keep those promises, those, those, those lofty promises, 
that are honestly empty, how often do you keep those things? Now, I want to be clear here, okay? Don't, don't miss me with this. Remember, Paul is not saying that these things aren't good. You should strive to be holy, for your Father in heaven is holy, right? He is not saying that these things aren't good. He's not saying that these things aren't important. But what he is saying is compared to Christ, they are all losses. Compare, if you, if you put here, if there were two options, knowing Christ and being religious, Christ supersedes being religious all day. All day long. All right, so, so here's the implication. If we don't have this perspective, that, that Christ is supreme over all, then the things that we think are actually gains are going to be incredibly hurtful losses to us. They're going to be disadvantages to our lives. Hear me out. They will steal our affection for Christ. We will end up loving those things more than we love him. In the end, we will give glory to ourselves and our efforts and our achievements, and we will not glory in Christ. This is, this is a really big deal. Here, here's why. And uh, there's a nuance here, and this is where it becomes overwhelming, elementary and overwhelming. I have found in my life, when I was younger, before I went into full-time ministry, uh, I think my affections for Christ were a lot stronger. And that's strange, isn't it? Like when I woke up, I read the word because I needed the word. When, when I prayed, I prayed because I needed God to move and nobody else had to know about it. When, when, I, when, I, when I did these things, I did it because I knew he loved me. I knew, I knew I belonged to him. Like all of these things, like I saw my affections being stronger. And then as I grew up and came into ministry and, and a full-time ministry, I find this tension that when I wake up and I open my Bible, and maybe if you were a leader in any way uh, with, with God's word, you're going to feel this tension. That when you begin to read, it's hard for you to read just for you. That you have a tendency that even today when you read through uh, Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11, your mind is already bouncing through. Well, I could teach it this way. This illustration would fit well here. I wonder what this is because I know this person's going to ask this question and I'm going to need to be ready to respond here. Do you see how exhausting it can become? And the point isn't to, to talk you out of ministry or to talk you out of growing up into Christ. It's this idea that whenever we come to the text, we, we need to understand that it is giving us good no matter what stage of life we are in. And the good that I see from this text today is both beautiful and overwhelming, and it is this. If Jesus isn't supreme, then all of my actions that I'm doing for him, they're not gains, they're losses. In all my religious activities, I'm trying harder to doing more. Even though I don't say that, even though that is not my goal, but that is where I am. If Jesus isn't supreme, if I don't already establish that he is Lord of my life, regardless, reg hear me out, regardless of anything that I do, if he's not Lord already, then if, if that's not established, then everything else I'm doing is doing, hopefully he will get, uh, I will get his attention. Hopefully he will see me. Hopefully he will love me. Hopefully he will acknowledge me. And that, my friends, is exhausting. Because God already sees you. 
He already knows you. He already loves you. And that's what Paul is saying here. He is so passionate about understanding this that he uses some language that is not found anywhere else in the Bible. Actually, this one word is in this verse, and it stands nowhere else, this verse that's coming. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I want you to to consider that word. That's the ESV word, rubbish. I want you to look at your translation. I just want you to lock it into your brain of what it is. All right? In order that I may gain Christ. All right? So I, I know that we've probably read this passage or this passage of verses many times before. We cannot miss Paul's wisdom here. In verse 8, it's as if Paul takes a highlighter, if they existed then, and he would just go to town highlighting this truth and this practice. And essentially he is saying, I have resolved, I have settled in my heart and my mind in the way that I live out my life that everything apart from Christ, everything apart from the supremacy of Christ in my life is a disadvantage. In comparison to knowing him, in comparison to loving Paul goes more into his resume, and and it it, it sounds, the seriousness of these claims. He says, for I have suffered the loss of how many things? What did verse 8 say? It says, I've suffered the loss of all things. But it doesn't bother Paul. It wasn't like he was lamenting that. Because he had considered, he'd resolved in his mind that all things, they paled in comparison. If he had Jesus, why did he need anything else? He said any of those things were rubbish. All right. The Greek word here, I want you, if if you're into word studies, even if you're not, because this should wake you up if you're attempting to fall asleep a little bit. The Bible is filled with gracious and beautiful words, and sometimes it's filled with salty words. This is an incredible salty word. If you want to do a word study, do the word study on the ESV word, rubbish. The Greek word is skubalon. I'm sure I butchered that translation. But it is the strongest, most crass word for dog waste. In our vernacular today, it would be equally translated as a four-letter word. That's how passionate the Apostle Paul is about this. What he is saying is, church, if you miss this, then we miss it all. Jesus is our hope, not our effort. Jesus is our hope, not not our hope is not in our effort and doing more or trying to, to be bad less. But Christ is our hope because if we get that, if we get that Jesus is already king, then we can rest in his grace and we are able to then be obedient to his will and word. Without fear of him, disapproving of or or not loving us anymore because we know Romans 8 tells us Paul wrote that nothing can separate us from his love so why would Paul be so strong here why that word to communicate the point that everything else outside of Christ keeps us from Christ everything outside of Christ is essentially dog waste Stay away from it. And, and to the point, and I know we don't have a lot of time left, and we have a few verses more to go. I want, I want to be clear, and the illustration is here. Don't, don't, don't write me an email, okay? Write it. It'll be fine. I'll read them anyway. It'll be great. 
I read your emails, simmer down. If you saw dog waste, how quick would you be to go run and pick it up? How quick would you be to run and prize it? Look what I found. How quick would you be to pick it up and to run and share it with all your friends? Really gross illustration. That's the point. Yet too often, that is our religion. That we will pick up religious activities and we pick that very thing up that does no good for us. Matter of fact, our religion, our efforts, thinking that we are doing something in hopes of getting God's affection, that is pagan worship, not Christian worship. Christian worship is we do because we already have his affection. Pagan worship is I'm doing in hopes of getting his affection. Essentially, Paul is saying when we do that, we pick that up. And we parade it around and we try to share it with everybody and we're so proud. Of course we wouldn't do that. Then why would we do it here? Well, we, we continue on. Look at verse, uh, continuing the last part of, of 8 and into 9. Why so strong? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All right, so essentially what he's saying is righteousness in Christ alone. Life lived in faith, not something that we have done or not done. But why is this so important? Why would, make, why would Paul make such a strong case? Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Oh, church, this, this is where I wish I had a whole other week and, and we would work here. here. Here would be my encouragement just quickly. So to take my thoughts and to make them into 30 seconds. Too often, we treat Jesus like he's a mascot. Too often, we treat him as if he is the one that stands behind us, but we really have no affiliation with him except for the joy of being our mascot. And in that mascot, we put on the clothes, we go to the places, we, we can do all the things, but we have no real tie or affiliation to him at all. And this would be my fear when we get into the Gospels, there's this moment, and it is one that I fear greatly. I fear for, for many of you and, and myself, if it's not for the grace of God, this is going to be us. There's a moment in the Gospels where, where, where Jesus is talking about what it's going to be like at the judgment. And there's two groups of people. And the first group, he's going to say, hey, well done. Good and faithful servants, come in and enjoy the master's banquet. And the second group, he's going to tell them, depart from me, and I never knew you. And they're going to say, whoa, whoa, time out. Didn't I, didn't I preach in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do ministry in your name? And Jesus' words is this, but I never knew you. Church, do not, do not, we cannot find our identity in what we do. We must find our identity in the one who has done it for us. We've got to. That's why Paul is so adamant. That's why Paul uses this illustration. That is why Paul is, is literally thinking he may die tomorrow. And this is the last message he wants to leave with them. And it is this, don't rely on you, rely on Christ. 
Why so strong? So that I may know him, may may I know Christ and the power of his resurrection, may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And then verse 11, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. As our worship team comes and we move to our response time, this verse can kind of give a little bit of anxiety, right? Because this verse kind of sounds like at first glance that Paul's not quite sure that one can obtain salvation or at least security in that. That's not what he's saying. How do you know, Josh? Because we can go to the countless other verses that he wrote of certainty and find truth there. So what is he saying? Paul is being incredibly humble in his confidence here. He cannot, nor would he ever say, I am confident or certain that my standing of God is because of what I've done. Go back and read the passage. What he's saying is, in the strongest words possible, my confidence in this life and the next is Christ and Christ alone. And the church, this should be our confidence our only confidence as well. So the questions we ask again this morning. Not have you tried harder to be better this week. My question that I think begins to shift this paradigm for us. Do you love him? Do you rejoice in him? Have you surrendered your life to him? Again, just for clarity's sake, I am not asking you to, in this invitation time, to be more or less of something. I'm not asking you to try harder or be better. I am asking you to come and surrender, to be with him. It's not a part of the sermon today, but my mind goes back to Mary and Martha. One was really busy. One came just to sit. Which one did Jesus say chose the better portion? The one that just came to sit. There will be time to do. There will be time to go and to serve, but hear me out. If you don't get this right first, those things will be futile exhausting you will burn out and not make it because Jesus isn't just our source but he's also our strength and that is the purpose of Philippians that we find in Jesus all that we need and we find in Jesus all that we are and so this morning my encouragement to you during this invitation time is to consider do you do the way your life is ordered because you know that God loves you? Or do you do the way that your life is ordered in hopes that God loves you? Let me, let me change it this way. We'll go back to the, to the beginning illustration Paul uses. If someone were to ask you, how do you know you saved what would you say maybe you'll say something what lets your heart rest in eternal peace 
if somebody were to ask you that question? If the answer is anything other than the grace of Jesus Christ, that answer is flawed. Why are you saved? The grace of Jesus. How do, how do you know? How do you know that you're saved? Because that grace made my heart new. I love different things. I want to do different things. I'm a part of different things. But it's not because I want to gain his affection. It's because he has found me and given me his affection. But what if he finds out what you've done? What if he finds out where you've been? What if he finds out that, that stuff you used to do back in the day? He already knows. He was there. He knows, he knows more than I know. And he still, he still loves me. That's the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ. If your life is built on anything outside of that, you're exhausted and burned out because it is built on you and what you can do and the religion you can bring. And it is no better than if you were to pick up that stuff and say, look what I'm most proud of. Church, stay away from that stuff cling to the one who knows you and loves you. Would you pray with me? Father, I love you and I thank you for this day and I thank you for the gift of your word. I pray this morning as we move into this response time, God, that you would stir in our hearts. No doubt that there are probably a lot of dualism going on in this moment. But we love you and we want to try hard so you'll love us more. God, forgive us for that shortcoming. God, refine us of that. Purify us of that. God, for in that we can find grace and peace and rest. And essentially, when we get into to later chapters of, of this letter, we don't have to be anxious about anything. Because with prayer, petition, and thanksgiving to the God who already knows, we present our request to you. And your peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?